Good morning, ladies. It's good to see all of you this morning to be able to sing praises to the Lord. My name is Debbie Wingeter. I've um, attended Habits since the second year it started. My husband, Rob, and I have attended ZF for 28 years. And we have four children and 11 grandchildren. So, this morning we're going to talk about Stephen and his speech that he gave. Those who do not know history are destined to repeat it. This famous quote has been attributed to several well-known people. When I looked it up, it was like Winston Churchill, Edmund Burke, just a lot of different people. Well, Stephen recounts the history of the Jewish nation to the Sanhedrin, the leaders and teachers who surely knew their history but did not believe that any of it applied to them. From the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve wanted to go their own way. This led to the fall and the beginning of the human condition of struggling with sin. Evidently, even though the priests had knowledge of the history of their forefathers, they did not believe there were any lessons there for them. They accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen responds to his accusers and recounts the history of the Jews as he makes a defense for the charges against him. At the beginning of chapter 6, we learned that Stephen, along with Philip and five other men, were the first deacons in charge of the needs and administration of the church. Stephen is described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and also full of grace and power. He's a man who desires to serve in the church, but he is also a man who knows God's word. At this point, it was the writings of the Old Testament, and he knows the history of his faith. He knows who his God is, and he desires to share this knowledge with others. Let's pray before we delve into God's word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for this beautiful, sunshiny day. I just thank you that you have given us your word that has been preserved over the centuries, that it was inspired by you. We just thank you now that we can study it and we pray that it will become not only head knowledge, but heart knowledge. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, I have four children. And when my oldest child was a junior in high school, the curriculum required that she take world history. Throughout the school year, she struggled in that class. Math and English were easy for her, but her history grade was in the basement. It was time for finals, and I was sitting in her room with her trying to help her study for her history exam. It was the end of May. She kept staring out the window. I kept calling her back. Pay attention. You've got to get a good grade on this exam. 
Well, she turned and she looked at me and she said, Mom, I don't care about what happened two weeks ago, much less what happened 200 years ago. <laughs> well, so were the Israelites. They didn't care that they were repeating the mistakes of their forefathers. The Jewish fathers had rejected Moses and the law given to them by God. Moses has gone quite a while getting the tablets of the Ten Commandments from God. The Lord has many more laws for him to give to the people. There's laws about sacrifices and the altar and laws regarding slavery and restitution, laws about social justice, observing the Sabbath and festivals, instructions and details in regards to building the tabernacle where they would worship Yahweh and make their sacrifices. This took a lot of time, and the people became impatient. They decided they need a golden calf, an idol they can worship and offer sacrifices to. Well, true, the Ten Commandments, with Numbers 1 and 2, specifically stating, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness, and, or bow down to them, had not yet been delivered. Moses had been detained. The Israelites were impatient. They got bored. They decided that making an idol to worship would be a good thing to do. They knew their history. God had shown his omnipotence and his superiority over the pagan gods of Egypt when he performed the ten plagues. And his power and providence was shown in the parting of the Red Sea. He was faithful as he led them through the wilderness, providing food and water for them. How soon they forget. The crowd mentality ruled, and they melted their jewelry and made an idol for worship and sacrifice. We are shocked, or are we? The first time I studied the book of Exodus in a Bible study, I was 28 years old. I couldn't believe how ungrateful and unfaithful the Israelites were. But then I was convicted by the Holy Spirit that I too have idols in my life. At that time, I had two very small children. My husband was working and going to law school. Our house needed some major repairs. An idol is anything that we put first in our lives instead of the Lord. It doesn't have to be something made out of gold or metal or wood. I learned that often I put my husband or my children on a pedestal thinking that they could supply my needs and fill my life with joy. I also tended to make my home an idol. Well, we were living in Zionsville, and this house wasn't up to the standards of most of the homes. And this was back in 1984. Now we have four children and a boatload of grandchildren. My family can and does give me great joy, but they cannot fill the void that only my God, my creator, and my provider can. My idol could be my career or my home or my self-esteem. Idol worship is usually easy to recognize because it always breaks the fellowship that I have with the Lord. Stephen continues in Acts 7.42 that God turned away and let them worship other things. He quotes 
from the Old Testament prophet Amos, chapter 5, 27, 25 through 27, where he refers to the time in Israel's history where they enter the promised land but worship heavenly bodies, such as the sun and the planets. Well, after seeing the blood moon and the eclipse a few weeks ago, I can kind of understand a little how people can easily think these awesome things in the sky invoke worship. I am always moved by a beautiful sunrise or sunset. But again, I must ask myself, whom do I worship? What do I worship? Stephen then recounts how the fathers made the tabernacle in the wilderness and moved it with them as they wandered for 40 years. Later in their history, David's son Solomon builds an incredible temple where they will worship God and make sacrifices. In Acts 7:48, Stephen emphasizes that one of God's attributes is omnipresence. He is present everywhere, in all the universe, at all times. So, in a practical way, the Most High cannot dwell in a physical building made by human hands. There is not a building in the world that is big enough to hold God. Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, stating that heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. I love the imagery here. We on this planet Earth think we're really special. Many people put their faith and trust in science and technology, but God, the Most High, uses the earth to put his feet up. I just love that vision of him doing that. Up to this point, Stephen has pretty much kept his criticism aimed at the actions of the forefathers. Now, in verse 51, he's going to get very personal with his attack on the present-day priests and elders. His words cut to the quick. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Wow. Stephen is pretty bold for a guy who has just been arrested and brought before the council. He has been charged with blasphemy, speaking against the law, and now to add insult to injury, he tells the priests on the council that they are stiff-necked with hearts and ears that are hardened and unresponsive. He points out that they have betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus. He goes on to say they received the law and did not keep it. Well, the reaction of the priests is one that is expected. They are enraged. They grind their teeth. Have you ever heard someone who is angry and upset grind their teeth? Well, this has been happening at our house when the Colts are having a bad game, <laughs> which has been pretty often <laughs> lately. It is evident that Stephen's boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. He gazes up and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing right where Jesus said he would be at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 1.3, we read, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there we see that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God because as the great high priest, he finished his saving work, the sacrifice for sin on the cross. 
Here, Jesus is standing because he is ministering to his people, specifically to Stephen as he is facing death. Stephen tells them what he sees, but they don't want to hear it. They cover their ears like our children do sometimes, you know? Like, I'm not listening, not listening. They rush at him, throw him out of the city, and stone him. Much like when Jesus died on the cross, as Stephen is being stoned, he cries to the Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. And then he falls asleep, which means he dies and goes to Jesus. Now I want to go back to chapter 7, verses 47 through 50. Solomon, who is David's son, is well known for his wisdom, but he is also remembered for having the temple built. In 2 Samuel 7, David tells Nathan, who is a prophet, that he wants to build a house for the ark of God that has always been since the time of Moses in a tent that moved with the people. The Lord says to Nathan, would you build me a house to dwell in? Later, the Lord declares that he will build a house for David, not David building a house for him. This means that God will establish a kingdom through the lineage of David. And Jesus is born through the Davidic line, and he is our king now and forever. Solomon did have the temple built, which he dedicated to Yahweh, and it housed the ark, which contained the Ten Commandments. In 1 Kings 8, 22-27, the dedication is described. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Here, Stephen and Solomon are extolling the attributes of God, and those are listed in our study on page 124. God is faithful in keeping his covenant, and his steadfast love never ends. Solomon then presents the question, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Here again is the attribute of God of omnipresence. He is everywhere and he cannot be contained. This temple that Solomon built was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar around 598 B.C., but rebuilt when the Jews returned to Jerusalem after the exile. We studied this 
a couple years ago, for those of you that were here when we did the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The temple is very important to the Jewish priests and elders. In their history, it has been the place of worship and sacrifice. When Stephen refers to Isaiah 66, he states that the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. He paraphrases the verses from Isaiah stating, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Did not my hand make all these things? The Sanhedrin council, who were scholars in the books of the Old Testament, should have known this too. But they had a heart problem and a hearing problem. Stephen accuses them of this when he calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. These men knew the truth, but they had compartmentalized it into head knowledge, and it didn't let it affect their hearts. They knew the Lord was the creator of the universe. They knew he was omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, but they wouldn't let the facts get in the way of how they wanted to live. They wanted to keep God restricted to the temple where they would meet with him on their turf. These men betrayed and murdered the righteous one. They resisted the Holy Spirit. They were spiritually blind and deaf, and they liked it that way. At the beginning of chapter 6, verse 7, was, we read that the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. But there were still those who doubted and argued with Stephen. Since Stephen was full of grace and power, they couldn't win the argument, so they had him arrested under false pretenses. They accused him of blasphemy against Moses and God. In chapter 6, Luke does not tell us specifically what Stephen said that was considered blasphemy. But just as Jesus was unjustly accused by the Pharisees, so is Stephen. Stephen simply recounts the history of the Israelite nation and their disobedience to God. But the council considers this blasphemy against Moses. Well, then he tells the council they have it all wrong in regards to containing God in the temple. So now he's attacking not only their history and their inability to learn from it, he is attacking the tradition of their worship and sacrifices. Stephen even implies that the temple is no longer necessary. If they put their faith in Jesus to reconcile them to God, they no longer need to make the sacrifices on the altar. We as Christians today sometimes have this issue. First, we want to put God in a box so that we can neatly organize him on the shelf of living life. We want to open the box when we need to, but not when we need to be disciplined and convicted. Second, since we have spent years being rewarded for our good works, our accomplishments in school or in the workplace, we really like the idea of doing something to earn our salvation. Putting God in a box and having a work-oriented salvation is the real blasphemy here. God is spirit, and he is everywhere. In Psalm 139, David says in verses 7 through 12, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The Sanhedrin thought the temple was the meeting place for men and God. Jesus comes to earth and says, no, I am the way to the Father. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't need to go to the temple and make sacrifices to have fellowship with God. Hebrews 10, 14, 11 through 14 tells us, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The early Christians were meeting in homes. They didn't need the temple. This new way of life brought by Jesus and shared by Stephen was also affecting the profits that many of the Jews made by selling sacrificial animals in the temple. If this radical idea caught on, many Jews would be losing business. The application for today is not to say that we don't need our church buildings. We do. But God is a jealous God, and he becomes angry if we make idols of our church buildings or have idols in them. Next week, we will learn that God uses Stephen's death to spread the good news of Jesus. In chapters 6 and 7, the men of the Sanhedrin council arrest Stephen and stone him because they think that killing him will stop the idea about Jesus as the only way to God, will stop it from spreading. In Acts 7.55, Luke tells, Stephen's, tells us that Stephen's eyes are on Jesus, and he is not afraid to die. He totally trusts in Jesus and believes that the blood Jesus shed on the cross paid the price for his sin and his admission into heaven. I would now like to talk a little bit about our dear friend, Patty Hutzel, who recently left this weary earth. Many of you knew her. Some of you, if this is your first year in Habits, you may not have met her. Our Habits of the Heart family and our church family have greatly felt this loss. Patty, like Stephen, had no fear of death. Her eyes were on Jesus as she breathed her last breath. I miss her so very much. She was one of my closest friends. Last week, my husband and I were talking to her husband, Tommy, and he said he had a little trouble trying to crack her password on her email account. He said he tried all of their children's names, the cat's name, and finally thought, well, maybe it was her best friend. So I was thinking, it was Debbie, right? No. It was Carol, her BFF from when she was growing up. Actually, everyone was Patty's best friend. She loved everyone and was a servant to all. 
I know her deepest desire was to share her faith with others so that they too would have no fear in death. She would say her greatest joy would be that her death would bring others to Christ. Well, this past weekend, there were men and women from this church and other local churches who participated in the Kairos program, which is a program where they, it's like a great banquet that they take to the prisons. I want to share an email from Tim Heidenreich, who was the leader for this from ZF. This past weekend, a number of us from ZF were in Pendleton Correctional Facility for a Kairos weekend. One part of the agape that we bring into the prisoners is the list of names on the prayer vigil. And when we did that, this time it became very special. Our speaker explained the prayer vigil process and showed them a blown-up graphic of the many people who were praying for them. He said they could look at it each half hour, look at each half hour on the chart and see someone praying for them. And then he told them about Patty. Mike said that Patty was a lady who didn't know any of them, but she still loved them. And even though she was very sick, she had claimed the first half hour spot on the prayer sheet. He went on to say that Patty had passed on prior to being able to meet that commitment. So more than 30 women from her church who loved her decided to pray in that slot for her so that it would cover the time that Patty had committed to. As we looked at their faces, you could see how much it affected them when they understood it. And several of them came over later to look at Patty's name on the chart and ask about her. On Sunday afternoon at the closing ceremony, one participant came forward and told the crowd of about 75 offenders and 30 outside guests, I thank God for Patty and for the 30 women who took her place. She really touched my heart. So Patty's desire to see others come to Christ is being played out now, even in prison. Her life and death is a testimony of the love of Jesus and his saving grace. Well, evangelism has always been hard for me. I know I should tell others about Jesus. I know I should speak without hesitation of all that I've seen and heard. I never seem to know what to say. I'm hesitant to share with strangers, but even more so with friends and family. I know I should develop a relationship with the person before I try to speak into her life. I know that I should speak with boldness and yet with a gentle and humble spirit. I must remember our first memory verse from the book of Acts, which was chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke records in his gospel the words of Jesus in chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. The Holy Spirit gives me the words to speak and the perfect time to do so. 
and he also prepares the heart of the person with whom I share. If I try to share my faith without allowing the Holy Spirit to guide me, my words will be wasted. And as Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, I should always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the hope that is in me. So to summarize, we have learned that history is important. We should care about it and learn from it. We should strive to be bold like Stephen, to be willing to suffer for our faith. Does this mean being bold in my Facebook posts? Well, maybe, but most likely not. But it does mean sharing the love that Christ has bestowed upon me with others in my neighborhood, in my school, wherever my mission field is. And evangelism should be done with love and sensitivity. We have learned that having just a head knowledge of God's word is not enough. We must have circumcised hearts and ears to put God's word in every moment of every day. And we should meditate and focus on the attributes of God. His omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience. He is a jealous God and desires for us to worship and praise him alone. And it is his heart's desire that every person would be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus. I'm going to close this in prayer. And then we're going to sing just the chorus of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for myself and for all of these ladies that we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be witnesses for Christ in Zionsville to the end of the earth. I pray that if there is anyone here today who does not know Jesus as her personal Savior, that she will make that decision today. I thank you that with that decision, we have no fear in death. And I pray that each of us will keep our eyes on Jesus, keeping our focus on him and his promises. In Jesus' name, amen.